Well, I'm, I'm sitting here, I actually haven't got a title for the talk. And come to think of it, I haven't got the rest of it either. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll ramble. Um, a couple of uh, months ago in early February, I went from uh, India where Shara and I had been teaching together to Rangoon and among the various reasons for going there, one was I had the opportunity to meet with the respected Sayadaw, that means teacher uh, Upandita, Upandita Sayadaw. And Upandita Sayadaw is much loved and respected in the insight meditation Dharma world. He has been on a number of visits uh, here and uh, taught uh, elsewhere in the West. And uh, it was the first time that I had met uh, with him. So all that I knew was what um, various friends, including Shada and others, had told me from their uh, retreats with him. And I suppose it would be fair to say that he has a, a fairly formidable reputation for um, strictness, uh, discipline, and the strong endorsement for people to focus, to concentrate, and to meditate hard, very hard, in fact. It's not unusual for him to uh, encourage his students to um, reduce their sleeping hours um, down to about four hours a night. And that the slow uh, walking is unusually slow, so that by the time somebody has finished sitting in here and engaged in the very slow walking, perhaps to the walking hall, the bell's ringing for them to come back. <laughs> so you get a little idea of the Upandita style, mildly exaggerated in the last point. Uh, and he's a, a person with um, very strong presence and the body keeps very, very still and in the communication from uh, him, it's a very firm, direct form. Sometimes, as a number of people have said to me over the years, he can be rather intimidating upon uh, meeting, meeting him and having one-to-ones. And relative to all of that, of course, uh, Jose Shah and I are very much in the laid-back regime. <laughs> So in speaking with him, and it's an in, this is, uh, I think, of some interest to those of you who have had lots of exposure to the Dharma, that he himself has made, has an important influence on, of course, on the life of uh, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and others. He has been making something of a shift in his approach to teaching, and it was this which I wanted to address to him, with him. And in that... He was known, and still is to a large degree, as a kind of hardcore Vipassana teacher 
in which the student focuses on the impermanence of existence, on the unsatisfactoriness of existence, on the not-self, the impersonality of existence, in a very strict and disciplined uh, way to cut through. And he has introduced, quite noticeably, teachings which have been emphasizing metta, you see in the sign on the door outside here at IMS, meaning loving-kindness, friendship, uh, uh, warmth, and using those deep inner feelings of connection for access to what is called jhanas, that's deep, um, joyful, peaceful absorptions within, profound depths of meditation, of samadhi. And for some, therefore, not all of course, taking some of the emphasis of you know, this hardcore insight into existence approach. And I therefore met with him and discussed this because also within the insight meditation community uh, worldwide, there has been specifically in the last two or three years a growing degree of interest in the use, the practices and the application of metta, that's heartfelt loving-kindness meditations, get some guidance uh, here with that of course, and also furthering that in various ways in terms of deep uh, inner absorptions called uh, jhanas of which there are many, many levels, all of which do contribute in a very active and beneficial way to a great deal of emotional psychological well-being. And so I said to him, why is he choosing and deciding to give quite a lot of emphasis to that approach? And his response was that what he is noticing quite um, far and wide as a Dharma teacher, that quite a, a number of people do have so much pain and difficulty in life, heart, mind and body, that to work with it directly for some people is acutely difficult, very, very difficult in fact. It's just too much going on, too much stuff, too much pain and anguish in life to actually face and, and work with. And therefore as an act of skillfulness, <clears throat> adopting and using the loving-kindness meditations, deep uh, heartfelt absorptions, jhana uh, practices. And so we went backwards and forwards in um, e um, exploration of, of that. And just a small aside to uh, all of that, in the, in the meeting it lasted for about um, an hour wi with him. He, he said, as any uh, decent meditation teacher would have to say, he said after five or ten minutes of myself talking with him, he said... Um, um, it's, look, it's no use just talking about these things. That means metta, jhana, vipassana. He said, these things um, have to be practiced. It's a practice. It's for, for uh, experience. And uh, not just to be talked about and theorized about. Which of course and he said it very uh, bluntly and directly. And my response, uh, if I may say, my response to him on uh, hearing, uh, hearing that is 
that there has to be a very level playing field here very, very quickly because of his uh, formidable nature. So uh, I said, let me just make it very clear with you that I was a Buddhist monk in the East for six years. I've been involved in the Dharma for nearly 30 years. I've had tons of practice on metta, jhanas, and uh, uh, vipassana, and maybe conceitedly feel I know the experience of these three fields as well as anybody in the West. Oh, Oh, he said. (laughs) (laughs) And from that point, we kind of cleared the decks. We knew where each other were at, (laughs) and we could have a level playing field together. And all credit to uh, him um, with regard to that. So one of the points which I made to him, I don't want to go spend the whole 45 minutes talking about it. Well, I do really because I've got nothing else to talk about. (laughs) But um, one of the points which I suggested uh, or talked about uh, with with him is that one of the dangers in uh, Dharma life and contemplative depth of meditation life is how easy it can be for there to arise, not easy necessarily, but uh, heartfulness, warmth, kindness, love, friendship, the, the meta experience, and that deepening and opening of the heart which comes with that, and then the access to uh, deep states of uh, jhana, and the easy aspect of that, how easy it can be to identify with that. I mean, who wants to look at the dukkha of existence? when one is feeling blissed out, as, or whatever it might be. I'm again, slightly exaggerating. And, and I said to, said to him, isn't there a danger that students could become fulfilled, not fulfilled, but uh, satisfied with the condition, and remember kindness is always conditioned, friendship is always conditioned, love is always conditioned, absorption is always conditioned, always needs conditions for its arising, and may wish to settle with that, remember the afternoon inquiry, may wish to settle with that and not be motivated to probe, to inquire deeply, to realise that which is unconditioned. And isn't there a danger that could happen, that therefore the teachings begin to get watered down? And he he said, and uh, straightforwardly and without blinking an eye, he said, no teacher of the Dharma would ever let a student be satisfied with metta and jhanas. No, stu- no teacher would ever let a person just rest in there as some kind of fulfilling aspect of Dharma practice and Dharma teachings. The only place of rest is with the unconditioned, not with the conditioned. And we went again, continued back and forward in, in in the flow. And in coming away from him and uh, from uh, Pandita Rama, the name of the monastery on the edge of uh, Rangoon, that uh, seemed to me his remarks and uh, comments placed in a very clear and firm perspective uh, a skillful and wise attitude. And I think it's something of an insight and a message in fact, for each and every one of us in receiving teachings and, in fact, in giving teachings 
to ensure that liberation or the unconditioned is kept central, is kept paramount, and that there isn't any watering down to anything else whatsoever. And that is a concern. And when one, as I was just sitting in the other, other room where the, uh, the, the staff are, and I picked up um, a magazine in the, um, uh, called Shambhala Sun, and I, there was an interview there with uh, Gary Snyder, uh, the, the poet, and uh, I've, ne I've never, met, never met him, but uh, he and I and Venerable Thich Han and Venerable Margot Shananda and Sulek Sivaraksha and Joanna Macy, Christina Feldman, we're all on the same uh, international board of the, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And in reading Gary's um, comment, he said there is a danger, and I agree wholeheartedly with him, that how things could get watered down, and one of the ways that could happen is that meditation is seen and becomes a kind of therapy. And it has definitely and, and unambiguously a definite therapeutic component even to, to develop and cultivate kindness and, and warmth is th therapeutic to uh, have deep inner states of emotional well-being which the jhanas bring is therapeutic to feel a sense of peace within oneself is therapeutic and, all, and, and that aspect and feature is uh, in the body of teachings, but there's never been in any clear, liberated teachings any confusion between the realization of liberation and the value of therapy. They're not in the same league. One is the condition, beneficial, wholesome, and well integrated for heart and mind in body and sound therapy, in this case, insight meditation as a resource for that and other forms, do make a contribute, contribution to that, a very important and valuable one. But realization is realizing the end of the evolutionary process. It's the discovery of its fulfillment and its end. That's beyond therapy. It's another league altogether. And, and the two do, as many of you know very well, give support and give great complement to each other. And all of that needs to be acknowledged. And I think the concern of Gary Schneider, the warning, one might say, of uh, an advice of Upandita to us as, t as teachers is very much in the right place. And it certainly gets my wholehearted support and agreement there. In that, in our looking, if we say, well, what is the Dharma here? What, what does that, that um, mean in a practical standpoint for us as people, people on, on the earth? And the looking at the general body of teachings and that means, in fact, that no stone of our life, of our existence, is ever left unturned. And it's, it's, all, it's a kind of departure from conventional religious life with its set modes of beliefs 
And it says, as I was mentioning the other evening, that every area of our life does need addressing. Everything is worthy of mindfulness. Everything is worthy of care and attention. Everything is worthy of bringing as much awareness and observation and interest to. And there is a certain kind of power, and this is, I'm quoting the Buddha for a moment here, there's um, a power which takes place, which is the authentic cities of life, not this religious mumbo-jumbo cities, but the real genuine cities, cities of life, the power of, of the mind, which is able to explore and transform its circumstances. And that kind of quiet development, we might say, and cultivation and, and practice does mean that we do have to be watchful and vigilant of not just focusing on one thing in a rather exclusive way. Whether we, as I said before, mindfulness, that one thing, or um, um, impermanence, or whatever. And sometimes it does require from us a skillful use of thought. Thought for inquiry, thought as a resource. And quite often we know in meditative life, in contemplative existence, perhaps of everything that goes around, so often thought is that which seems to be the most problematic. And how many times do we say to uh, ourselves, and in small groups, one-to-ones, I just find myself thinking too much. And itself, in the kind of the paradoxical uh, features of our inner life, it's just yet another stream of thoughts going, I'm thinking too much. And the thinking builds on the thinking, which builds on the thinking, and it becomes a, a tyranny for consciousness. And despite all our um, socialized language in the uh, world of um, having choice, we sit and we are still, and it seems like there's hardly any choice. Mind is relentless in its capacity to think. And it will take up anything, anything to think about. And it could be the most trivial drivel, drivel there, and sometimes the more trivial and the more drivel it is, the more interest to think about it. <laughs> and we find ourselves you know, asking, my God, what has happened to my mind <laughs> that, that it's got into such a, a slovenly state of, of affairs that, that my whole day, and if not the night as well, is con consumed with this rabid -like thoughts running, running through, snapping away at everything and everybody. And in all of that mumbo-jumbo of the, of the um, mental life, it's not surprising, therefore, that there can come about a rather strong view that if I stopped thinking, then I could really get something.
If I stop thinking, then I could get um, deep samadhi, deep meditation. If I stop thinking, I'm sure I'd have incredible realizations if only I could stop thinking. And one starts to pray to <laughs> for this uh, occurrence there. And as I say, it's around and around. And sometimes part of the deception that goes along with that is that if I could just think about it a little bit more, <laughs> I'm sure I'd come to a tremendously insightful answer. And quite often in those circumstances, the thinking only stops because of utter exhaustion. <laughs> and there's no ending of thinking. There's a, a, a temporary um, abeyance of it as one's face falls in the soup <laughs> because of this degree of thinking that's going on. And then one gets some sleep or some uh, recovery or whatever. And then something else or the same thing, the wheels start up all over again. And one knows what this word samsara means, meaning this wandering on from one thing to another in, in perpetuity. I mean, it's like, where, how, what's going to, to, to make this stop? It can be that when the thinking itself is uh, seized upon and when it's got a particular focus and issue, Part of the effort, forlorn as it might be, but part of the effort in the constant thinking about something or someone is that the mind thinks that the resolution of the issue comes through thinking. It thinks that. And it thinks, therefore, this process will get me somewhere to a solution of it. And thus, and not surprisingly, one begins to feel the frustration and the limitation of thinking, and not surprisingly, we easily give it a very bad press. We want the thinking to change. If the thinking is an attempt to understand something, and the thinking is <coughs> fueling the issue, and causing all manner of distractions because one's going from one angle to another angle to another possibility and going round and round and round and it's not bringing resolution to the, to the issue then one says, what will? Thinking isn't doing it, what is going to make the difference? And so naturally enough there does come about a deeper and greater interest in a non-thinking approach to problems which one thinks are resolvable through thinking. Non-thinking approach. And then this seems a very good idea. One starts to think about that. <laughs> and once again, the old tricky dick mind is back on course in this. And the uncanny phenomena with all, all of this, which is one's life, one's mental life is, that in a moment, sitting, walking, standing or reclining, that there is a quiet moment of determination, 
about a thought, to look at it, you can't find it. If one just, for a single moment, just stops and says, I'll observe, thought, arise and pass. Boom. Where the hell are they? <laughs> they were there, running through like mad dogs. <laughs> one has finally woken up, then it's time to look at them. And one stops still, closes the eyes, keeps the seat firm and steady, ready, okay. And, damn it, they disappeared. They're like villains in the night. And what is it that the power of observation, of mindfulness, of consciousness, of thought, or whatever you want to call it, is such that when that's there, it doesn't permit this rambling thought to occur. They disappear from their invasiveness, shall we say, in the consciousness. But one is unable to maintain that kind of energy, that kind of focus, that kind of power of mind, and when that begins to diminish, and mind begins to move, the, the diminishing of the power of attention become simultaneously, correspondingly, the invitation for all the thoughts to come swooping back. And we find ourselves, as it were, in our inner life, mental life, going backwards and forwards between the power of attention to uh, observe, to be steady, to be still, to be mindful, to be conscious, the diminishing of that power of attention, and to be replaced quite often with thinking, 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 and and the energy being consumed up in that way and taking away that power of attention. I mean, see, is this our lot in life? Is that it for us? Are we going to be either thinking, thinking, or making all this right effort to keep focused, keep mindful, and therefore not keep thinking? Whole relationship to existence can depend on the examination or the inquiry into these set of circumstances. <coughs> we, we often forget that, as one or two of you, a number of you have been speaking, that the thought isn't, isn't disconnected from everything else. Thought doesn't appear in isolation. Sometimes the thought is arising out of the strength of emotion and feelings that are going on. And we very much know that one is feeling strong feelings, strong emotions, strong waves, pleasant or painful. And then the thoughts reflect that. They are a statement about that. And out of those thoughts all manner of conclusions can be drawn. But we want to be rather watchful of that impact, mutual impact, because when emotions are moving, pleasant or painful, enough pressure on the mind to produce thoughts out of the mind, then the thoughts out of the mind easily feed straight back to the emotion, refuel the emotion, refueling of the emotion, impacts further on the thought, thought impacts further on the emotion, and one is building up drama and crisis. 
in one's own life, explosive sometimes. And often it's the power of the emotion is rarely powerful enough on its own to really be of harm to oneself or others in this world. Very rare does it have that potency. But it gathers that potency through the way the thoughts are showing themselves and what the thoughts are saying in its movement. And we wish to look at every time the feeling or emotion is going on, what kind of thoughts are coming out of it? Because our well-being and others and circumstances may rest on those thoughts. Whether those emotions are intensely pleasurable and then we get suddenly really excited about something and we become an extraordinary risk to ourselves or others. Through the intensification of a pleasurable emotion, generating a production of thoughts, getting high on them, getting out of touch and pain being the outflow of it. Or painful emotion arising, generating another kind of thought, equally getting out of touch and then generating pain for ourselves or for others, for life. Yet our consciousness itself does have the capacity to accommodate all of this. It does. And in our being with our uh, inner circumstances, movement of emotion, movement of, of thought, or sometimes little emotion and lot of thought, or vice versa, surely part of knowing ourselves is knowing how that is with us. How it is with us. When you look at yourself, do you consider yourself a strongly feeling kind of person? Do you consider yourself a strongly conceptualizing kind of person? Do you feel that it changes from one to another? Do you feel it's a, somewhat a mixture of both? So the knowing of ourselves from those points of experience is knowing and acknowledging how we are as a feeling, thinking human being. How we are as a feeling, thinking human being. Where we are with all of that, and it varies considerably from one person to another. And there are some people who have a very anti-stance with regard to one or the other. Some people will become anti-intellectual. Other people say, oh, it's just your emotions. It doesn't show any kindness, certainly doesn't show any, any clarity, and doesn't under, show any understanding of, in, of the inner life. And I've had enough conversations in life, as I'm sure you have had, with people, and the person says, well, I've just come, and it takes some wisdom and humility and understanding, the person says, I've just come to accept that I am an intellectual type. I do think more. My friends, my partner, my therapist, 
or whoever <laughs> says, I ought to bring up more feelings, I ought to be more emotional and I ought to, but I'm not that kind of person. And so there are plenty of people in this world who in their feeling life is very, very quiet. And it would be going against the grain of who they are to expect themselves to somehow be different and somehow expect meditation practices or therapy practices to change the way of being of the person. And similarly, there are other people who are intensely feeling kinds of, of people, emotional people, heart, strongly heart uh, people, not involved in a lot of rational thinking, a lot of uh, um, um, analyzing and interpretation and thinking things through, etc., etc. And just as easily, it's, people can then just dismiss such people, not show the care and love and respect for such people, and be quite out of touch. And I think we have to be very watchful in ourselves, either towards ourselves or, or to others, against the kind of, what, perhaps not a word for it, mentalism, as distinct from racism or sexism or whatever it might be, or of discarding and rejecting people because they tend to be more one way than the other. doesn't show much wisdom in life, does it? Nor clarity, nor ability to accommodate and to know there are this range and other ranges of people living on the earth and who are in this hall, in fact. So we're working to accommodate and to explore and to, underst and to understand is knowing ourselves in that dynamic. And it's too easy to put oneself down as much as others when one gathers a momentum about I should be different from what I am. In bringing uh, care and awareness to the various circumstances there, there's a very valid and skillful place for thought. But skillful thought, rather than just thinking about, one of the features and characteristics of it is, generally speaking, it has a much greater precision. And thus, where one is embroiled in a particular concern or issue and one keeps going over it, as I said, the mind may be struggling to understand, but perhaps the precise question need, need, needs to be, what needs to be understood here? What is it that is not clear? And one might take some risk and jeopardize that carefully cultivated calmness and relaxation that's been occurring over the days for some people and in just raising a question of the mind is focusing of an issue that one is focusing along what, what is it that's to be understood what needs to be clear clear here what am I, do I not acknowledge not recognize not accept what is it that I am unwilling to do, or whatever it might be? 
and somehow meditatively to retain the question. If we can find a way to quietly but firmly retain, retain the question, it might spring and trigger and bring out of us some insights which make a difference. It might. And the risk is that in just inviting or generating that question about an issue which is of matter, that one just finds oneself lost in the stream of thinking and one feels kind of worse off than before one even asked the question. But we also, in the inner life and in the psyche of our um, uh, inner, inner life, sometimes also have the view, and I think one's got to be extraordinarily watchful of this, is that the view that for anything to be resolved, it has to be addressed. This is fiction. This is real, uh, can be a real blind spot. Something is going on, it hurts, it matters, it issues, it's pain, it's got difficulty, and it's concerned with relationships of past or present or future or to oneself or whatever. And the sheer frequency of its repetition can appear to indicate to the mind the only way this is resolved is by addressing it, to look at it. Sometimes the track record is appalling. We know there can be an issue going on in one's life and one can spend not only years but megabucks <laughs> looking at an issue in terms of resolving it. And we've, we, 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 we've got this solving problem mechanism in our mind. We, 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 we're brainwashed into it. For every problem, you address it and you solve it. And that's what you do. But what are we bringing to the problem? We're bringing the same mind to it. It's not like there's two minds, it might feel like it, but I, I promise you there isn't. It's not like we're bringing one clear, fresh mind, independent and objective, to look at that lousy, confused mind which is, in some, other, which is some other mind. It's the same mind looking at itself. And so sometimes what the object of interest in the mind and what the subject means, the looking at it, joining that two together is the same mess. One mess trying to work with another one. And is it surprising that one ends up in total mess? So meditative, contemplative teachings, and in fact, Dharma, Dharma teachings in, in general, say, yes, we do work, with, despite the limitations of all of that, 
with looking at and working with and facing and going into, in spite of the risk, it might make things even more difficult and confusing. But the teachings are also, also saying that the resolution of issues come through no interest to resolve. Through no interest in resolving it. Just not caring about it. And going through another meditative approach which simply doesn't make a fuss about it. Not concerned with answering it, not concerned with having a satisfactory outcome, but using other resources, meditative, mindful, awareness, consciousness, etc. And through some other avenue or vehicle, the resolution comes. And what was a problem ceases to be a problem and one's done nothing about it. And everybody knows this experience. Sometimes it's things are inwardly are best left well alone. We need to give as much interest to what is, as the Buddha said, to what is not present as to what is present. And sometimes we see in our life and in the experience and in the unfoldment of our existence that the sense of well-being can come when we've done nothing about something. The sense of well-being has come in another way and what seemed to be a crisis, seemed to be a problem, has disappeared, gone. One knows not from where it came, one knows not from where it goes, but what one does know, problem has ceased and it was never addressed. And the potential and the wonder and to some degree the mystery of all of that transforming is something which is available for us. And thus we might have to ask ourselves, am I spending too much of my life trying to resolve problems? Am I, if I'm in the professional category, spending too much of my life telling people they've got to resolve their problems? And if we've got a bias that way, there's a blind spot. A big blind spot. Like the, like the Buddha said, even at the relative level, I was speaking earlier about Upandita's teachings on jhana, uh, the deep meditative absorptions. And in having access to those, he says, where there is access to that depth, the Buddha, Buddha says, the um, habits and patterns, the hindrances towards selfishness and aggression and... Um, uh, apathy and indifference and anxiety and agitation and fears and doubts, those things which are troublesome and difficult for human existence, that in depth of meditation, in the depth of that, the corresponding, those corresponding hindrances begin to lose their significance. No working of them out. One has tasted of something much sweeter. And the tasting of something sweeter diminishes the power 
or the authority or the grip of those things which one knows are uninvited, unwelcome and unwanted. The taste of something sweet uh, takes the potency off all of that. Greedy life, egotistical life, arrogant life, selfish life, one loses the taste for it. Why? Because one knows something that infinitely better, infinitely sweeter. And that becomes curing without addressing the issue or the problem. All of that is in the field of inner life and, and inner activity. But nevertheless, it's still all in the field of conditioned nature, of the dependent arising of circumstances coming together, and this remarkable element of awareness which can know and see and describe and feel and think and understand all of this. What does this awareness rest in? That can reveal so much. And that ultimately we're interested in. What makes all of it possible? And that ultimately is the primary interest as Upandita said, as any worthwhile teacher says, finding that which is unborn, finding that which is deathless, finding that element which is free, and keeping that clear as we can. May all beings live with awareness. <clears throat> May all beings see deeply into the inner life. May all beings be awakened. <clears throat>